Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Nine months have passed since horse patrol agents were accused of whipping illegal immigrants at the border. The CBP is now releasing what they found in an internal review. Two weeks after the downfall of Roe v. Wade, President Biden is signing an executive order today on abortion access. And he had a message for Americans. Well, for God's sake, there's an election November. Vote, 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 vote. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe dies after a gunman opened fire at a speech. He was 67 years old and was Japan's longest serving Prime Minister. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh meets with the opposition again, this time while out in public. This incident comes just about one month after someone allegedly tried to assassinate him. A heavy blow to the Wisconsin Elections Commission, the state Supreme Court rules against ballot drop boxes in elections. We'll tell you what that means. One of Canada's Freedom Convoy organizers is on trial. She's now been denied bail and faces multiple charges. The family of a Manhattan bodega worker out on bail switches fundraising platforms after being cancelled for what they're calling unfair charges against him. The three-time defending champion at Wimbledon got off to a slow start again today in the semifinals. We'll tell you how Novak Djokovic responded while facing a partisan crowd. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said today he is terminating his $44 billion deal for Twitter. In a letter to Twitter, Musk's lawyer accused the social media company of failing to comply with its contractual obligations. Musk had put the buyout on hold until Twitter proved that spam bots accounted for less than 5% of its total users. Musk's lawyer wrote that Twitter did not provide Musk with the relevant business information that he requested. Customs and Border Protection has released its findings of an investigation into horse patrol agents who were accused of whipping illegal immigrants along the Rio Grande River last September. Despite initial appearances, after a careful review and analysis of videos, photos, and eyewitness accounts, this included an interview with a photographer on the scene and other members of the media, OPR found no evidence Border Patrol agents involved in this incident struck any person with their reins intentionally or otherwise. But the investigation still concluded that there were failures at multiple levels of the agency, a lack of appropriate policies and training, and unprofessional and dangerous behavior by several individual agents. The CBP commissioner says the agency is seeking disciplinary actions against four agents for unprofessional conduct. The agency didn't say exactly what the punishments would be. Agents are now prohibited from twirling or spinning their split reins as a distancing technique or in crowd control situations. The agency also said despite the actions taken by certain agents, there was no evidence any migrant was forced to return to Mexico or denied entry to the United States. And amid pressure from his own party, President Biden today signs an executive order related to abortion. Pro-life advocates call the order sad and dangerous. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Signing an executive order on Friday, President Biden vows new actions to protect abortion access. We cannot allow an out-of-control Supreme Court working in conjunction with extremist elements of the Republican Party to take away freedoms and our personal autonomy. According to the White House, the order aims to ensure access to abortion pills, protect patient privacy, and provide legal help for those seeking and providing abortion. It also established an interagency task force on abortion access. And the Department of Health and Service needs to submit a report within the next 30 days to the president regarding the implementation of the order's provisions. Meanwhile, Biden using an example of a reported case. Ten years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state. Urging Americans to vote for those who support codifying Roe. Well, for God's sake, there's an election November. Vote, 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 vote. But a similar argument was refuted this week by the Republican governor of Arkansas.
Last year in Arkansas, we had approximately 3,000 abortions. A very small percent of those were uh, rape or incest cases. The, by, the vast majority are those that uh, did not uh, have any of those exceptions to apply. And so we're going to be saving a num thousands of lives of unborn children. It's sad. It's dangerous. Meanwhile, Noel Brandt, the director of government affairs with a pro-life organization, says promoting abortion pills would kill more children while questioning the creation of a task force for abortion access as part of Biden's order. That is just so antithetical. Our government does not exist to uh, just be a shill or be a promoter for the abortion industry. Brent adds that he doesn't believe Biden's election message will work. When Americans actually look at what different leaders believe, it's President Biden's abortion up until birth agenda that is extreme and off-putting and will ultimately lose them in November. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And turning now to Japan, whose former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the longest-serving leader of modern Japan, was gunned down today while campaigning for another candidate ahead of Sunday's parliamentary elections. His assassination has shocked the world. Police arrested the suspected shooter at the scene. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot from behind as he spoke to members of the public while campaigning for a parliamentary election in the western city of Nara. A local news service published a photograph of Abe lying face up in the street by a guardrail with blood on his shirt. People were crowded around him, one administering heart massage. He was taken to the hospital in cardiopulmonary arrest and showing no vital signs. He was declared dead about 5 p.m. local time. A doctor said he received deep wounds to the heart and the right side of his neck. He died despite receiving more than 100 units of blood in transfusions over four hours. Japanese Prime Minister Humio Kishida said he was left without words and deeply saddened by Abe's passing. We have lost a great politician who has made great achievements in various fields in order to open up the future of this country. Once again, I'm deeply saddened that we lost him this way. Japan Broadcasting Company NHK quoted the suspected shooter, identified as Tetsuya Yamagami, as telling police he was dissatisfied with Abe and wanted to kill him. In Japan, guns are tightly controlled. Media said the weapon was a homemade gun and that suspect Yamagami had served in Japan's self-defense force for three years until 2005. Abe was Japan's longest-serving leader before stepping down for health reasons in 2020. President Joe Biden said he was stunned, outraged, and deeply saddened by the news. Other current and former world leaders posted statements of tribute and condolences, including Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Reporting by Trevor Piper, NTD News. And back in the U.S., on Wednesday night, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was forced to leave his dinner. According to Politico Playbook, Kavanaugh was eating at Morton's Steakhouse in Washington, D.C. when protesters showed up out front. The protesters then called on the manager to kick Kavanaugh out. A representative from the steakhouse described the protesters' actions in a letter to Politico reporter, saying, quote, disturbing the dinner of all of our customers was an act of selfishness and void of decency. This happened about one month after someone allegedly tried to assassinate Kavanaugh. Members of the Supreme Court have faced intense criticism after overturning Roe v. Wade. And voters in Wisconsin won't be able to drop off their ballots using drop boxes anymore. The state Supreme Court ruled that ballot drop boxes are illegal. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to three today that ballot drop boxes are illegal under Wisconsin statutes. The court ruling says that an absentee ballot must be returned by mail or the voter must personally deliver it to the municipal clerk at the clerk's office or a designated alternate site. The lawsuit came after the Wisconsin Elections Commission issued two documents in 2020. 
The Elections Commission said that drop boxes can not only be utilized, but that they can be unstaffed and permanent. The agency also said a family member or another person can drop off a ballot on behalf of a voter. Now to Florida. Good news for the state's Republican Party. The GOP has reached an all-time high of total voters in the Sunshine State. One expert says that's because of people migrating there from other states. Florida's Republican Party voter tally has reached 200,000 more voters than the Democratic Party, according to data obtained by the Epoch Times. That's the first time in the state's history. Just in December, the GOP outnumbered Democrats for the first time ever in Florida. Back then, their lead was less than 50,000 voters. By March, the advantage had grown to 100,000 voters in favor of Republicans. And another leap this quarter brings the total to an over 200,000 voter lead. A spokesperson for Governor Ron DeSantis told the Epoch Times that this lead is no surprise. She told the Epoch Times that Democrats are falling in line with Joe Biden's policies that are making Americans' lives harder and more expensive. But Governor DeSantis is standing in their way, making Florida the firewall for freedom. She added that they'll prove that Florida is a red state in November. Although the GOP has the advantage now, Florida used to be a blue state, especially during the Obama administration in 2008. When DeSantis was elected governor in 2018, Republicans were still 300,000 votes behind Democrats. One election expert says this change is due to Florida's successful branding across the nation. He says the huge influx of people into the state is largely comprised of right-of-center voters from blue states coming to a better place to live. Today, there are one million more people registered to vote in Florida than just four years ago. One of the organizers of the Freedom Convoy in Canada, Tamara Leach, has been denied bail. She appeared in court in Ottawa earlier today and will remain in custody to await trial. Leach is accused of breaching bail conditions set previously by attending an award ceremony in Ontario last month and interacting with another convoy organizer. Her previous bail terms prohibited her from being in Ontario and contacting fellow organizers. Her next court date is scheduled for July 14th. And in New York City, a bodega clerk is out of Rikers Island on a $50,000 bail after being charged with murder in a stabbing death that his family says was in self-defense. Convicted felon Austin Simon on Friday night accosted the store clerk, reportedly after his girlfriend's food stamps card was electronically rejected as payment, and she accused the clerk, Jose Alba, of snatching a bag of potato chips from her daughter's hand. The Daily Mail cites Alba's family as saying that she then produced a knife from her purse and attacked Alba before calling on her boyfriend for backup. Surveillance footage of the incident gives some idea of what happened next, and we'll show a clip now, but just be warned, it may disturb you. We see Simon approaching Alba and a few moments later shoving him against the shelves behind him. Simon then stands over Alba, wearing what appears to be a designer shirt, and an altercation ensues. Reports say Simon was demanding an apology for his girlfriend from the clerk at the time. Alba then goes to grab a knife and stabs Simon in the neck and chest. The mail reported that the weapon was the store's box-cutting knife. The footage then shows Alba emerging with blood on his hands and arm. Simon later died in the hospital. And Alba was arrested. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's office had reportedly asked for a $500,000 bond, but a judge set it to, to $250,000. Then the family went about trying to raise the funds. When they got to 20000 in donations via the crowdfunding site GoFundMe, the site took the page down, saying the campaign violated its terms. Now an alternative site, Give, Send, Go, is hosting the campaign. And the platform's co-founder, Heather Wilson, explains why. I spoke with her earlier today. Heather Wilson, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. GoFundMe has shut down Jose Alba. He had raised tens of thousands of dollars, all of which has been returned to donors. Why did you decide to accept his campaign? Because Gifts and Go is a platform that stands on the freedoms afforded to us in the United States. And in that is the presumption of innocence, the freedom to be able to have, a, have due process, a trial by our, our peers. And he should be allowed to have people give to his legal fees. GoFundMe said it can't host campaigns that fundraise for the legal defense of a violent crime. What's your take on that? Super hypocritical. That's great if you were like that across the board. 
make your rules. They have the right to do whatever they want on their platform. But we've seen over and over again that GoFundMe is very one-sided in what they deem a violent crime or, or who's, who's the aggressor in things. Jose Alba is being charged for murder. You've seen the footage. Do you think he acted in self-defense? I think it's very clear to me that he was behind a counter doing his job. Somebody came to him being the aggressor, and he stood up for protection. Now, the good thing is, though, we don't have to go by this little footage. It's great we have it. But he should have the right to be presumed innocent until all these facts come out, instead of just saying we're taking him down and we're not going to listen to his side of things. I think most people are now watching this going, what in the world is going on that this man is a, being deemed a violent criminal? You've said in relation to this case that the Internet should drive freedom, not be a source of tyranny. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. We believe that freedom in the United States is what our forefathers have died to protect. And we need to stand up today and say we're going to put ourselves on the line for freedom as well. And that includes freedom that is afforded to us on self-defense, freedom afforded to us um, in our, our right to speak out about things, and all these big tech platforms that are saying we're going to shut down things we don't agree with. It is so anti-American. Gifts and Go is here saying we're going to be the big tech platform that is good tech, not bad tech. Heather Wilson from Gifts and Go, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants to lower the cost of prescription drugs for Florida residents. We'll have his plan of action. And Amazon and the Port Authority have parted ways after a year of talks about building a new Amazon cargo hub at the Newark airport. Why the sudden change of plans? Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Buying prescription drugs can be very expensive. Too expensive, according to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He says he wants to lower the cost for Florida residents, but is waiting for federal agencies to respond. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed an executive order that would make it possible for the state to hold prescription benefits managers, or PBMs, accountable for the prices Floridians pay for their prescription drugs. PBMs are responsible for contracting with pharmacies, negotiating discounts with drug manufacturers, and managing drug costs for insurance companies. DeSantis says these PBMs are middlemen that sometimes raise prices unnecessarily. He says it's about time Florida looks into the role PBMs play. This is an incredibly opaque process. This is, uh, and you can see why there's money potentially being skimmed because it's very much out of view. Um, and this has really developed into a cottage industry. DeSantis says the executive order will direct state agencies to prohibit spread pricing in contracts with PBMs. Spread pricing is a practice where PBMs collect money from individuals and then keep leftover funds after paying pharmacies. Agencies will also have to provide transparent reviews of all payments and relationships between pharmacies, insurers, and manufacturers. Besides signing the executive order to lower drug prices, the governor says he's also in touch with the FDA. He says he wants to find out why his request to buy drugs from Canadian companies has been stalled. DeSantis says it doesn't make sense that the FDA isn't allowing Florida to buy drugs from Canada, which, according to him, would save them hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe that pharma has told them they don't want this, uh, but, you know, we've got to stop doing policy just on the basis of what pharma wants. We reached out to the FDA, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And on jobs, the U.S. saw a healthy boost in hiring last month, 372,000 jobs. That's more than 100,000 over what economists expected. Sectors that added a lot of jobs include professional and business services, leisure and hospitality, and health care. The latest numbers came out today in the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly jobs report. Unemployment held steady at 3.6 percent, still close to the 50 52-year low we hit in the months before the pandemic. 
Despite June topping estimates, the job gains for April and May are lower than previously reported, 74,000 lower. Economists predict job growth will slow in the coming months as recession fears grow. And Amazon and the Port Authority of New Jersey have thrown away plans for a new Amazon cargo hub at Newark Liberty International Airport. This is an important location because it's close to the New York metropolitan area. Neither side has explained why. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Amazon and the Port Authority of New Jersey have abandoned plans to build a cargo hub at Newark Liberty International Airport, a deal worth $300 million over 20 years. Newark's critical uh, air hub for uh, Amazon because of the sheer volume of packages that have to be serviced to the greater New York metropolitan market area. Mark Wolfrat is the president of MWPVL, a supply chain and logistics consultancy. Wolfrat says that the New York metropolitan area is currently being serviced by three air hubs that are farther away. There was indeed a need for that facility. They'll now have to figure out where they're going to go with it. The New York Times says this comes after unions and advocacy groups objected to the lease, saying they couldn't support it unless Amazon met a list of concessions. One of the advocacy groups is Clean Water Action. An incredible victory for us in our coalition of uh, Good Jobs, Clean Air. Amy Goldsmith is the New Jersey State Director at Clean Water Action. Goldsmith says her group was concerned about things like health and safety safeguards, Amazon's trucks damaging the roads, and the impacts on small businesses. We spent months literally canvassing communities and getting people to sign pledge cards to agree to to the issues that we cared about, like clean air and good jobs. Uh, we mobilized our congressmen to, um, you know, weigh in and, and have influence. They even got Newark Mayor Roth Baraka and Congressman Donald Payne to weigh in on their side. On another side of the story, Amazon posted its first loss since 2015 in the latest quarter, and the company believes it's overexpanded. It's a question of timing. So they will eventually do something in that region for an air sortation center. They need a facility there. It's just a question of when. Mark Wolfrat, the logistics consultant, believes Amazon wants to delay construction to improve their income statement. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Ever wondered where to get good, robust discussions on important topics that explore all sides of the story? A self-described festival of free minds starts next week. Freedom Fest is an independent, nonpartisan setting to celebrate great books, great ideas, and great thinkers. I spoke with the festival's executive director, Valerie Durham, earlier today to learn more. Valerie Durham, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here today. Now, Freedom Fest says it celebrates liberty from an independent, nonpartisan perspective. Could you tell me more about that? Absolutely. You know, Freedom Fest is all about bringing people who care about liberty in many different facets, not just political, but in financial freedom, health freedoms, cultural and social freedom. How do we come together and have serious conversations about this uh, in a way that's open? We have civil discourse. This is the way we make progress is by bringing these people together to talk about freedom in its many different facets. And why is it so important at this time to um have an open environment? Well, I really believe, and the entire team at Freedom Fest believes that this is how we make progress. It's when we come together and really understand the different ways that liberty affects our lives that we actually can make progress. And too many times out in social media, um, in our political discourse these days, there are these polar opposites and there's this sense of, you believe this, therefore I'm against you. And that really doesn't help us get to the next level of living freer lives. And it's only when I understand why you're concerned about a particular issue or why you feel a certain way that then perhaps we can work together to better our lives. Because humans are so good at trying to find ways to better our lives. Why not do it together rather than hating on each other all the time and, and uh, having all this vitriol and, and rhetoric? It's really important to discuss these issues rather than yell at each other. You attract people from all walks of life and speakers from across the political spectrum. Who do you have coming this year? So we are delighted to have the likes of John Cleese, who uh, from Monty Python and Faulty Towers and so many other things, who's going to come and talk about creativity and uh, freedom of expression. We also have folks like Senator Rand Paul, Betsy DeVos, 
Uh, Andrew Yang is coming to talk about his initiative with Larry Sharp to end the duopoly, to try to find more political voices. We have Ben Stein coming to talk about economics, Glenn Greenwald coming to talk about independent journalism. So there's really something for everyone at Freedom Fest. Zuby's coming to talk about um, freedom of expression and creativity, Maj Ture about gun rights. So we have such a dynamic group and uh, I can't wait to see all of the ideas that are just gonna pop out of everywhere and propel people forward to make a difference in their lives and in this world. And could you tell me about the theme, Turning the Tide? Absolutely, you know, we've seen so much rancor and so much rhetoric and so much statism. I mean, after going through all of the pandemic, the way that the government handled lockdowns, we really see how fragile our rights and privileges are. And it's so important that we go back and turn the tide against authoritarianism, collectivism, statism, all these isms. We really need to get away from isms and go to the freedoms and the liberties rather than all of the isms. And so we're turning the tide against that by coming together to create a swell that goes towards more liberty and freedom. And speaking to that, what are you hoping to achieve from this year's Freedom Fest? We really are hoping to get more and more people involved and to realize that all of us um, have something of value to offer when we're coming together with these aligned principles of greater individual sovereignty, greater individual choice and opportunity. And so whether you are a, uh, a Bitcoin person or a, um, you know, drug legalization person or an educational choice person or election integrity person, all of these things come together. So we really want to reach out and encourage more people to be part of this, to bring their voices together, and then to go out into the community and create this turn the tide moment towards greater freedom. Valerie Durham from Freedom Fest, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. And NTD's own Bo Davidson from The Bo Show and Paul Graney from our business news will be at that event. If you can't make it in person, but you'd still like to go, Epic TV is partnering with Freedom Fest to offer exclusive access to new films and documentaries as they're airing at the event. But you can also watch at your own convenience. Just sign up to Epic TV at the Epic Times website. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the San Francisco mayor appoints a new district attorney. The prosecutor says she will restore accountability and consequences in the justice system. And the three-time defending champion at Wimbledon got off to a slow start again today in the semifinals. NTD's Dave Martin reports on how Novak Djokovic responded while facing a partisan crowd. Francisco is getting a new district attorney appointed by the mayor. The new prosecutor is replacing Chesa Boudin, who voters recalled earlier this year over his soft-on-crime policies. NTD's David Lamb has the details. On Thursday evening, San Francisco Mayor London Breed appointed Brooke Jenkins to serve as district attorney for both the city and county of San Francisco. Unfortunately, as we all know, we are at a tipping point in San Francisco. San Franciscans do not feel safe. And concerns surrounding public safety have become their number one concern. Jenkins previously served as an assistant DA in the San Francisco DA's office from 2014 to 2021. She has over 15 years of experience as an attorney. The paramount mission of the district attorney's office is to promote public safety. And as your next district attorney, I will restore accountability and consequences to our criminal justice system here in San Francisco. Violent and repeat offenders will no longer be allowed to victimize our city without consequence. Jenkins says she will target violent crimes, hate crimes, open-air drug markets, and improving incarceration rehab programs. Before her appointment, she resigned from former DA Chesa Boudin's office in 2021 due to dissatisfaction with the office's direction. 
She then joined in on the recall effort. She sacrificed her career to fight for people in this city, to fight for victims who needed a voice in this city. Jenkins is an African-American and Latina, as well as a Bay Area native. Her appointment makes her the first Latina DA in San Francisco history. She studied at University of Chicago Law School and UC Berkeley. The new DA will serve until November, when there will be a special election to decide who will complete Boudin's term through 2023. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Novak Djokovic overcame a one-set deficit today against ninth-seeded Cam Norrie to advance to his fourth straight Wimbledon finals. The four-set win pushed his winning streak to 27 matches in a row at the All England Club. As in his previous match, Djokovic started slow, but this time he was seemingly able to flip the switch after one bad set, instead of the two, he spotted Yannick Sinner in the quarterfinals. Djokovic, who's the three-time defending Wimbledon champion, will advance to his record-breaking 32nd Grand Slam final, breaking a tie with Roger Federer for the most ever. The 35-year-old will face Australia's Nick Kyrgios Sunday in the finals. Should he prevail, it would give him his 21st Grand Slam championship which would break a tie with Federer for second place and put him one behind Nadal for the most all-time. In addition, it would mark his seventh Wimbledon title, trailing only Federer's record of eight. In basketball news, the WNBA Players Union announced they are standing with Brittany Griner after she pled guilty to drug possession charges in Russia. Terry Jackson, the executive director of the union, said in a statement, with a 99% conviction rate, Russia's process is its own. You can't navigate it or even understand it like our own legal system. Greiner told the Russian court yesterday that she had no intention of committing a crime and had packed in a hurry. Greiner has been detained in Russia for more than four months after authorities say they found cannabis oil in her luggage. The U.S. State Department has classified her situation as wrongfully detained, meaning they are working to secure her release. Greiner reached out to President Biden himself in a handwritten letter which made its way to the White House earlier this week. The president then spoke with Brittany's wife, Sherelle. Greiner's trial resumes on July 14th. Finally, in baseball tonight, the All-Star Game starting lineups for both teams will be revealed. So far, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge and Braves outfielder Ronald Acuna Jr., the top vote-getters from the fans in each league, already have their place in the starting lineups. Beyond Judge's and Acuna's selections, Major League Baseball has added St. Louis's Albert Pujols and Detroit's Miguel Cabrera, so-called legacy picks, as reserves. Both players may be past their primes now, but both are certain locks for the Hall of Fame whenever they retire. Pujols has won three MVP awards and is a member of the exclusive 3,000-hit club. Cabrera, who's won two MVPs, got his 3,000th hit earlier this season. As for the pitchers and the rest of the reserves, Major League Baseball will choose them via player ballots in conjunction with the commissioner's office. All in all, each roster will have 33 players. The All-Star game will be played in Los Angeles on July 19th. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And amid flashes of color and fluttering wings, NTD's Jackie Rios learned more about butterflies and what they need to live life to the fullest. She stopped by the recently opened Butterfly Pavilion in Los Angeles, where there's plenty of beauty for guests to enjoy. Mosquitoes and bees, ants and beetles. Most people do not care for insects. But did you know that butterflies are in fact part of the insect family, and we all love butterflies. So today we took a visit to the butterfly exhibit at the Natural History Museum here in Los Angeles. Well, we provide everything that the butterfly could possibly want here. We give them different types of food sources, different plants, fruit, and they get to engage with other butterflies as they fly around. And in exchange, visitors get to come in and learn about the importance of butterflies and of insects in general. They get to see all sorts of behaviors that are happening inside the pavilion. 
Lisa Gonzalez is the program manager for Living Intervertebrates at the museum. She says this year the exhibit includes dozens of new and colorful tropical species from Costa Rica, in addition to existing and rare favorites. There are two species that are by the coast here in Los Angeles that are, are incredibly rare, the Palos Verdes Blue and the El Segundo Blue, and so those are very critically endangered. Unfortunately, other butterflies that are incredibly rare. Gonzalez says guests come to admire the butterflies for their distinctive and colorful patterns. But for the butterflies, the flittering flashes of color are important to their survival. We see butterflies, we see their colors, we see their beauty, but we don't always realize what those colors and those patterns are, are communicating to other animals. Even before taking to the skies, the little creatures have ways of tricking predators. One example is the giant swallowtail caterpillar. So whenever you see an animal that's brightly colored, like a yellow or an orange or a red, that animal possibly contains some kind of toxin in their body. And that is what it's communicating to other animals. It's saying, don't eat me, I could make you very sick. There's another little trick that they could do to try to protect themselves, which is eject that like, horn-like structure, give off a bad smell. Gonzalez also listed two species that are native to Los Angeles, which the museum is working to protect. So specifically in Los Angeles, there's the El Segundo Blue Butterfly and the Palos Verdes Blue Butterfly, and both of them are critically endangered. So there are ways to help by uh, helping with rehabilitation of habitat or providing their host plants, which is actually really the best way that people can help butterflies. For those looking for ways to help the butterfly population, Gonzalez reminds people that the best way to help nature is with natural solutions. So the best way to protect any animal, specifically butterflies, is to provide the right resources for them. And so with butterflies, a lot of times their caterpillar, their, their larval stage, needs a specific host plant. So my biggest recommendation is to plant native plants native to that area. And you have to remember that you're feeding both the caterpillar and the adult. So you want to find host plants for the caterpillars, and then you provide the flowers for the adults that are feeding on nectar. The butterfly exhibit runs through September. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, two top senators, one Republican and one Democrat, are visiting the Ukrainian capital. They're introducing a bill that would further punish Russia for the war. Find out more after this short break. Senators from the Judiciary Committee are on a trip to Ukraine to show support for the country and to promote a bill on Russia. They met with the Ukrainian president in Kyiv Thursday. Here are the details. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal presented their bill on Russia to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in Kyiv on Thursday. The bill would designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. The purpose of the visit today was to make sure that our resolution designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism was the right uh, uh, choice to make. I leave here today more committed than ever to making sure that the United States Senate passes the resolution authored by myself and Senator Blumenthal designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. It was Graham says he believes the bill could get near unanimous support in the Senate. Meanwhile, Blumenthal says he supports sending more military equipment to Ukraine. We should continue upping our game in providing the artillery and air defense and other military munitions and capacity, but also the humanitarian aid that is so necessary with refugees still yeah. displaced in the millions. Responding to the senators, Zelensky said he feels the strong U.S. support. He is asking for more equipment to fend off missile attacks on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. We appeal to you, first of all, so that the U.S. Congress supports Ukraine in supplying Ukraine with modern air defense systems to provide such security measures so that our people are not afraid to live in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed the war in a speech to parliamentary leaders on the same day. He accuses the West of waging a proxy war against Russia. 
We are hearing that they want to defeat us on the battlefield. What can I say? Let them try. We have often heard that the West wants to fight us until the last Ukrainian. It's a tragedy for the Ukrainian people, but it looks like it's heading in that direction. Putin also said that Russia had barely got started in Ukraine and the prospects for any negotiation would grow dimmer the longer the conflict dragged on. U.S. Senator Rick Scott is taking a short trip to Taiwan this week. In the meantime, Beijing also sent fighter jets across the Taiwan Strait. It's a move Taiwan decried as provocative. Here's more on what's happening. U.S. Senator Rick Scott is on a two-day visit to Taiwan. After meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen, he told reporters that the world has changed since Russia waged war on Ukraine. I think what, you know, what Taiwan has to do, Japan has to, South Korea has to do, they have to continue to, uh, to build interoperability uh, with um, those they think will work with them to defend their freedom. They've got to continue to do more drills uh, to make sure they're ready uh, in case uh, communist China does uh, or Russia or anyone else does the wrong thing. Um, so I'm going to do everything I can to be helpful. During Scott's visit, several Chinese fighter jets crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's defense ministry denounced Beijing's move as provocative in one which has seriously damaged regional peace and stability. The median line is an unofficial buffer zone between China and Taiwan. Normally, both sides stick to their respective areas, but in some cases, the Chinese Air Force goes beyond the dividing line. In the Pacific, the growing threat from China is also a cause for concern. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese raised the issue during his annual meeting with New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Under Xi, uh, China has changed its position. Uh, it is more forward-leaning, it is more aggressive. Australia's position is that uh, we will uh, continue to engage uh, and we want to cooperate with China where we can but we will stand up for Australian values when we must. We have seen a more assertive position uh, from China in our region. But whilst you know, our position is that we therefore, on that basis, shouldn't suddenly say to sovereign nations that they have to pick for whom their relationships are with, we are also very clear on our values and the way that we conduct those relationships. It should be the Pacific priorities first and foremost. They should be free of coercion. The annual Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting is scheduled for next week in Fiji. China's new security agreement with the Solomon Islands is expected to be a high priority on the meeting's agenda. And after the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, there was an outpour of condolences from around the world. But some of the responses from those in China have deviated from messages of respect. Taking a closer look, what did Japan's former prime minister do to anger China? And how does it play into the countering the regime's threat? We spoke with Grant Newsham, senior fellow of Japan Forum for Strategic Studies and director of One Korea Network, to find out how that might change with Abe's passing. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, glad to be here. Thanks, Uber. Thank you very much. So what does Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese prime minister's assassination, mean for the region? So not just Japan, but also Taiwan and the broader Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. Well, Prime Minister Abe uh, really deserves credit for having turned Japan away from this mindless pacifism, which is really ignoring the threats to Japan, to freedom, free countries in the region. He, he, he's the guy who turned it around. And after he stepped down, he continued to be a really a tireless proponent of a, a strong national defense for Japan, of a free and open Indo-Pacific, which means the, the free nations getting together to protect their own interests, the, the things that uh, have allowed the region to prosper. And he was also a strong supporter of the U.S.-Japan alliance and also support for Taiwan. And he did have a lot of influence, even post-retirement. And so following his death, there's already been a lot of reports about kind of the legacy Abe is leaving behind, and you mentioned that too. So what did he do exactly in terms of China especially? Um, what he did is he set in motion uh, sort of, uh, sort of a chain of, a, of activities that were going to improve Japan's national defense, its ability to defend itself uh, and to defend its ideals. And what were those specifically? Well, first, he managed to reverse a decade of cuts in the Japanese defense budget. 
So for every year of Abe's administration, he at least managed to get a small increase. And that was a huge change. He managed to change uh, the, the interpretations of laws regarding so-called collective self-defense, which Japanese bureaucrats and politicians had used for years to handcuff the country so that it couldn't even do the most commonsensical things to uh, build up its defense forces. Abe got that changed. And now you see the Japanese military uh, out and about uh, all over the region. It does real training. It engages with other nations. And none of this used to happen until Abe got that done. And he pushed it through in the, in the, the face of really opposition from the political class, the commentariat. Uh, and that took some nerve. He also got the U.S.-Japan defense guidelines changed, uh, successfully had that worked out with the Americans. So now Japan can be more of an ally. It can provide real support to U.S. forces where before it couldn't. Um, additionally, he, got, he himself went out all over the world and he spoke up for Japan. Uh, and he, he, whereas Japanese politicians and prime ministers traditionally had been kind of quiet. And they didn't go to many places. But he went out and he spoke up for, uh, say, these democratic ideals. Uh, additionally, uh, you had him. He's the guy that started the Quad, the, this combination of India, Australia, uh, Japan, and the United States. It's an informal security grouping now. But it was Abe's idea that he uh, got going the first time he was in office in 2006. Uh, that deserves credit for that. And the expression free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, that's something that came out of his administration. Uh, he also kept the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership idea going after the Americans pulled out uh, just before President Trump was elected. Uh, and that has been an important thing, both economically but also politically. And speaking of that momentum, Grant, do you see that continuing going forward, even without Abe around? Uh, I do. Uh, I think that it's pretty well taken hold in Japan's uh, political class, uh, even the Japanese military, uh, but really in the public at large. Uh, and, and interestingly, the public, Japanese public has always, I think, had a better sense of foreign affairs than most of the Japanese politicians. Uh, and they understand the risks facing the country. And to them, it's simply a logical uh, thing that Japan will improve its defense that it will be able to work better with the Americans. So I think this is a sea change, and one doesn't like to use those words. Uh, but as I said, if you've been around Japan a while, uh, today's Japan is practically unrecognizable uh, from what it was a decade ago. Uh, and it's also, uh, I think, important to remember that you know, Japan is a, you know, really, it's been a force for good. Look at its uh, behavior since the end of World War II. You won't find a better re better behaved, more responsible nation uh, that has done its best to, uh, I say, be a good country that actually is a, is a positive force in the region and, and globally now. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Coming up in a former gold mine in South Dakota, scientists begin the search for dark matter. They are pretty sure dark matter makes up 85% of the universe's mass, but no one has ever seen it. Physicists have successfully created a dark matter detector called the Lux Zeppelin, or LZ. It's located in an underground research facility in South Dakota. Scientists believe 85% of the universe's mass is dark matter, but they have not yet been able to prove it. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. In a former gold mine a mile underground, scientists have begun the search for dark matter. They're pretty sure dark matter makes up 85% of the universe's mass, but no one has ever seen it. Scientists say the cosmos that we can see is less than 5% of what's out there. Knowing what the dark matter is is going to tell us about how the universe formed in the early days, uh, why it evolved the way it did, and why it looks the way it does today. Here, a mile of dirt, a giant tank of special water, a second tank, the purest titanium in the world, and 10 tons of liquid xenon block nearly everything that could contaminate their search. 
We're looking for exotic particles coming from outer space, passing through the Earth. Um, we're building an instrument that we believe will be sensitive to see those particles. And if we see them, it's going to revolutionize what we know about where the universe came from, why it looks the way it does, and what makes up the universe at, uh, at the very smallest scale. The idea is that dark matter will run into the nucleus of xenon to reveal its existence in a flash of light seen by a device called the time projection chamber. What we're doing in our experiment is we are basically taking a whole bunch of uh, liquid xenon and we're instrumenting it so that we can see if anything bounces off of it. The key to the whole endeavor is this giant tank called the cryostat. So this is the inner cryostat. A cryostat is a, like a thermos. So xenon is very cold and we need to keep it cold. On Thursday, scientists announced they had successfully started up the Lux Zeppelin dark matter detector at the Sanford Underground Research Facility in Leeds, South Dakota. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.